What's up? You're listening to the Scholarly Spark podcast. Here's your chance to finally become interested in learning and find out what you're genuinely curious about. Join me as we discover the secrets of South Asia and experience different foods, the latest technologies, immerse ourselves in a variety of phenomenal cultures, find out about interesting people we never knew existed, and learn about what no one else dared to find out. I'm Kamal Narayanan, taking you on a journey through the mysteries of South Asia, all from the convenience of your headphones. Here we go. Yeah, and I was I actually started reading your book, uh, South Asia World History, wow. and just just from reading the the preface, that wow. it was whatever you had put in the preface was so powerful and it really magical. Because when I started reading, I was like, "Wow, I love South Asian studies. I love to do research in the field." But to read reading this preface has made me love it even more because the way you phrase uh, how the how the field. Uh, is as a whole it it puts in such a magical light that's such a that's very 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 appealing and yeah and i I do it very much it's it's certainly a naming for but you know um it is also an act of imagination there's one line in it oh this is fun yeah this is very funny because uh i i I was slammed by a review in in pakistan Mm -hmm. and uh (laughs) What I found in the many things that I've written is that when you read the review, many uh, times the reviewer has clearly not read the introduction. Exactly, exactly. Okay, I know. That's so true. It's just so frustrating. <laughs> I feel, yeah. This one reviewer said, I think this is more of a textbook than a monograph. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know, like that. that was about 20 years ago from the, the State Department expert on the Viet Cong, who actually became a good friend of mine. But uh, it was really funny. Oh, yeah, here it was. Here it is. Uh, South Asia's capacity for synthesis and adaptation is a recurring theme in efforts to gauge the region's place in world history. And then it goes on to say, yet this capacity is not unlimited, and then talks about why. And this guy responded to this saying that this is a hoary old way of looking at India essentializing what it is. And that's not what this is. Yes, I know. It says, if you're going to do world history, one of the things you can look at is its capacity for syncretism. Yeah. You can't can't look at the region from every perspective. (laughs) And it was only, literally, it was only after you invited me to this interview uh, that I was thinking, and I said, that's why he said that. He just didn't read the introduction. (laughs) Or did so and uh, essentialized it, which we all do. That's a part of being a human being. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of time in a monastery in order to slow down and be able to see what's actually there. And I learned that not only from hanging out in monasteries here and there, but also becoming a scuba diver. Because oh. you'll notice really good scuba divers. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, you just float down to a... a, a current and you can float along the wall of a piece of coral and you can simply have your arms folded across your chest you're breathing a slow and you see everything but you'll see everybody else going by you know flipping away going at two miles an hour and missing almost everything uh, because you're moving too quickly and you know this is an essential part of all uh, religious meditation and philosophy is you know you have to 
you can't get a focus in, unless you're, you have decided not to have a focus. Let's put it that way. Just be open. So uh, that's part of, a, of what I do in my work. And, of course, I always pull myself up when I haven't done that. You know, I've seen something that I know must be true, and therefore, because I feel it, and then I try to find evidence for it with the idea that it'll support what I think. And right. that's when the alarm bells go off, and should, uh, in, in any professional historian, because otherwise you'll bend the facts and the evidence to suit what you exactly. like. Exactly. And one of the ways of getting past that, of course, is by asking other people, learning from other people. Yeah. So I have a theory, you know, as I mentioned, for mm-hmm. world historians, that's really important, but especially for South Asian historians. So, uh, and also you know, certain topics whether it's racism or war, things right. like people have passionate feelings uh, and they go too fast because their emotions are driving. So mm-hmm. it's, it's makes it, what is it? It makes the reviews interesting. Let's put yeah. it that way. By the way, I have a colleague I, I enormously respect and uh, he, we, we were doing a seminar for uh, yeah. uh, historians, uh, students who, who are moving on through history mm-hmm. and it's just seminars, the historian's craft. And all the historians give a little talk. And uh, he presented this re- review of a book of his that he felt was terribly unfair. And this guy, the reviewer, went and reviewed, uh, 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 th- went and wrote his own book. And Pierre, oops, sorry, you won't know who he is anyway, <laughs> decided to write a biting re- uh, review of the book of the guy <laughs> misrepresented. Him. And and he loved, I, he was delightful, one of the most entertaining, the, the first name won't give anything away, but he's just absolutely admired in, by many people in his field. His language skills are unbelievable, and he's very funny and a very interesting human being. And, but I turned to the chair of the department, and I looked at him, I said, this is what we're training our students <laughs> to do. <laughs> well, if they could do it, we'd probably be happy, because we really want them to be skilled, let's put right. it that way. Yeah. Well, you know, there's the, the, uh, Association for Asian Studies, the, uh, the journal, JAS. Uh, uh-huh. There were many times where the editor, the book editor, you know, over his, historically, didn't realize the book that was being commissioned for review was being given to someone who hates the author, you know? Yeah. You go ahead. You go ahead. I was just saying, as soon as you see the hostility, then yeah. the best thing to do as a historian is you go, oh, he doesn't like him. <laughs> I'll look for another review of the book, you know. <laughs> have you have um, you have you had any like particularly outrageous reviews on your on your books? No, uh, 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 what's what, not? I mean, I'm. Uh, it's hard to explain, but for many reasons, uh, I am as interested in uh, in mainland Southeast Asia as I am in any other part of the world, including mm-hmm. South Asia. I was a teaching assistant in both fields, and those were my two major fields for my PhD. And uh, uh, I published a lot of stuff on the Vietnam War. Right. And uh, I, I mean, I've published in Vietnamese history that goes back to the 18th century, mm-hmm. but I've, I've also written about the, the Vietnam War a lot. I've edited many books uh, on it and from very different aspects. And I'm, I may be the only historian of the Vietnam War in the United States that nobody hates. Wow, because right. because my research is so detailed. I know. I mean, this is why I do it. My That's research amazing, yeah. is so detailed and wow. so steeped in the actual archival work, which most of us know. Right. Uh, that they can, I mean, the people who work in the field, that they simply can't say that's not true or 
you know, you've, you've, you know, what to call it, you know, the kinds of criticism that are unfair, they just can't voice them. That doesn't mean there, there might not be some people who don't like me, yeah. but in terms of, uh, for other reasons, I guess, <laughs> but nobody ever questions the value of the work. And, and to me, you know, that, that's really all that matters, especially when, uh, you know, all the people you respect like it, that's fine. Uh, but it's great that there's nobody who disrespects it. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, uh, I, I, I'm very pleased with that. And so I try to do that in everything I do. It's not that I, and I think because if you, if, as I call it, slowing down uh, and being meticulous in your work uh, is a kind of respect for the work that people. Exactly. See. Yeah. So you, um, yeah. So like, one of the things you said about um, what scuba diving and monasteries—that was that was really that was really cool. Uh, how does that relate to? How do you feel that relates to your life as a historian? Well, what I used to do uh, uh, when I when I was when I write, I walk. You know, like I'll mm -hmm. I'll go out. I'll I'll take a <laughs> I'll take a turn around the, the British National Archives. You know? <laughs> I'll, I'll go downstairs. You yeah. know, where there's TV and a little cafeteria. And, and I'll walk, or I'll just take a walk. And, and you know, walking improves your, uh, you know, your blood flow, mm -hmm, yeah. especially to your brain. Mm -hmm. And things become clearer. So if you're, if you're every, everything you do, you're imagining that under the best conditions, things would be clearer than you think they are right there when you're doing the draft. Yeah. Uh, that's very healthy. You, that, that allows you to be self-critical. It allows you to change uh, your mind uh, about things mm -hmm. and uh, 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 meditation has the same effect you know it's slowing your body down right, right. Uh, it, 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 uh, people say there are other effects but the point is you slow your body down and uh, then uh, you start see, thinking about things that you didn't think of before uh, words transitions uh, you know what was uh, you know, was one historical character really as selfish as you think they were? Mm -hmm. uh, people in that same situation, uh, how did they feel? Uh, not in that, see, that's a value of world history. Not, in, not then and there, but everywhere where you can see the pattern of what they're dealing with. So, for example, uh, uh, bureaucrats that are looking at, like in China, where you have this very noble profession of a meritocracy and uh, and uh, Confucian style administration, right. which uh, revives itself every once in a while, but which inevitably declines out of the selfishness of the of the Mandarinate, because the most important thing is family. So mm -hmm. your, your commitment is is limited to a certain extent. At least I can say that in this vague, you know stereotype, you know, vague, uh, generalized uh, thing, which I would never use as a form of analysis. <laughs> a ton of books on the Confucian Mandarinate, so I'm really riffing here. Uh, but the thing is, well, let's look at uh, people in the State Department right now. Mm, okay. That's, that's, right. That's, that's, what, what, kind of, what kind of pressures, uh, what kind of concerns that, you know, that they have? And I know people in the State Department, and I know they take, you know, they're, they're very serious, and I would say that They'd like to keep their jobs, uh, but they're under enormous pressure. But in this case, it's political. It's a question of your your own self because we're an individuals, much more individualistic society. So it's a question of what what's the how much what kind how much cost are you willing to do uh, to be able to walk away or do the right thing? 
And that's something that's consistent in all societies. What, what is the right thing? When you're in your 20s, the right thing, if, if your government asks you to pick up a gun and you kill people, you don't know. Right. And, and it's the right thing and, uh, uh, for most people. And for others who uh, don't think that, don't have that instinct to do that, uh, how far are you willing to go to defend it? And yeah. uh, I think that there's something I don't want to say good about the, what is it? People call it wars of choice, but the wars, the United States has been two, in two 20 year wars, 25 years for Vietnam, I think in Afghanistan, it's now longer. And people are beginning to see the effects of this kind of, 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 of military service, which is wonderful. And, and necessary, but they're beginning to see that there's a high cost so that maybe they will think harder when the application of coercive force is being considered. Because even John Kerry, who was a uh, Vietnam veteran against the war, believed the president when he said there were weapons of mass destruction. Right. And there weren't. And uh, when the Iraq invasion was, was uh, getting underway, a bunch of us gave papers at a conference that was covered by the New York Times, and, and we said, look at the parallels between Vietnam and Iraq. Uh, th- this idea of, uh, uh, you, some people call it American exceptionalism, uh, but this, uh, th- this pattern, you, you know, uh, you, you don't know the territory, you don't know the people, you don't know the culture, and you think you can just do what you do, and it will work out. And if it goes bad, you'll pull out. And the point is you can't, either of those things. And uh, it, it, it's, you know, one of the saddest things as a historian is to see these wars perpetuate themselves where all the, all the professional historians that I know, Lloyd Gardner, all sorts of people mm-hmm. uh, in that area, all said the same thing as we said on our panel, that, uh, you know, the, the, we're, we're repeating patterns, that the kinds of things that world historians look for. Yeah. And yet we don't learn them, and uh, uh, all we can do is teach the next generation of students to think more critically, not yeah. be critical, but to think more critically about patterns of the past. And history isn't taught very much as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most students in college are lucky if they just get a one semester of U.S. history. Wow. wow. Why, do you, why do you think it isn't taught as much anymore? Well, it's this uh, um, uh, obsession with STEM. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and uh, but of course, we all know that people who do STEM work for people with liberal arts degrees. Right, and, right. And that's the pattern. Uh, but you can't convince uh, parents uh, that that's <laughs> the, uh, yeah. because most of them are not what uh, liberal elite. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get to be <laughs> making a joke. Yeah. That's how you get to be a member of the liberal elite. Uh, <laughs> Right, and uh, but it, it, these things are repeating. You know, uh, every generation is the worst. You know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and in some respects they are, but in some respects the, they they do learn these things. And uh, yeah. they, they uh, the the um, students today are are in terms of gender issues and uh, the environment are a hundred percent different from previous yeah. generations. And their commitment or their interest, at least, in these things. Mm-hmm. It's been super fun learning with you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Join me next week as we explore another part of the vast, mysterious lands of South Asia. I'm looking forward to exploring something new that you've never heard about next week. Talk soon. <laughs>